0: Hello and welcome to Sensing NICU. I'm Emma, a NICU mum, a peer support volunteer and a secondary school teacher. In this podcast, I'll be chatting to people who have experienced neonatal care. Mums and dads, friends and families, doctors and nurses, people who, in any capacity, understand the scary, emotional, uplifting and sometimes devastating journey that time spent on NICU can be. Using the five senses, we will explore the thoughts and feelings that encompass the experience, accessing memories formed by sight, smell, touch, taste and sound that may have, until now, been locked away. In this week's episode, I'll be chatting to Nicole, a US Marine who was on active duty in Japan with her husband when she became pregnant with their first child. The discovery of an enlarged ovarian cyst meant that their son, Arwin, had to be delivered by emergency C-section at an army base hospital at just 25 weeks. Thank you, Nicole, for volunteering to be part of the podcast. Um, I mean, as soon as you messaged me with your story, I thought we've absolutely got to chat because it's such an interesting, unique story. And um, I'm sure the listeners will be so interested to hear it. Um, I know because of uh, the time difference that we've got, um, it's been a bit more difficult to organise chatting, but we're here now and uh, it's lovely to speak to you. So we can just make a start, please. And if you tell the listeners your story.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, You know, just to start off, thank you so much for for having me. I think this is an amazing project, what you're doing. And, um, it, it, you know, it's really my honor to be able to, to, to come in here and and sort of share, to share our story. Um, you know, still fairly fresh. Uh, my, my delivery happened May 5th, 2020. So, you know, coming up to a, a year now pretty soon, but, um, so just sort of starting from the beginning, my my story, I'm an active duty United States Marine. Um, and so in 2019, my husband and I, um, we got orders to be stationed in Japan. So we were, I was stationed at an Air Force base just on the outskirts of, of Tokyo, Japan, working there. And in November of 2019, we found out that I was pregnant. We were elated. We had been trying for some time. And so mm. you know, it, Japan was not necessarily where we thought that we would have our first <laughs> child, but you know, we were happy nonetheless. Um, and during the pregnancy, uh, pretty early on in the ultrasounds, they, the doctors identified a cyst on one of my ovaries. And it was explained that you know, cysts are, are fairly common in pregnancies, that they can occur, and it's not that big of a deal. But throughout the pregnancy, it, it continued to grow in a way that was going beyond sort of what would be normally expected. Um, okay. I think the the last measurement they got, it was up to about 14 centimeters. <gasps> um, and so when I was about 25 weeks pregnant, uh, one day at work, I was finishing up for the day and I suddenly had these immense stomach pains. I mean, it, it imagined the worst cramps that you've ever felt.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and I had never had, uh, you know, labor contractions or anything like that. So I have no, I still have no idea if that's comparable or if that's what I was experiencing. But for me, since it was my first pregnancy, to me it mm-hmm. just felt like incredible uh, cramps. So I, I called my husband. I had walked to work. I called him to come pick me up. He picks me up and we head over to the the medical facility on base. And now this is a very rudimentary medical facility. I think it, I think it did have maybe one, well, I know it had one operating room, but I don't think it had much more than that. Right. So Gosh. if you were going to have a complicated pregnancy, they would move you to a different military facility in, in Japan, just because the location where I was at is not intended for uh complicated type of surgeries. So When I got there, they immediately determined that uh, my son's heart rate was dropping, and that they needed to do an emergency C-section. Now, I, uh, throughout this process, because mostly because I was in so much pain and I was trying to stay calm, um, I had never taken any delivery or uh, you know breathing classes, but I had seen in the movies that when women go into labor or when they're doing delivery that they're supposed to like do this woo sawing, like right. old breathing. And so yeah. I channeled that and was just doing my best to just stay focused on, on the breathing and trying to, you know, minimize the, the pain. Um, And so they, they wheeled me back immediately to an operating room and there, you know, there's people running around and, and I remember as they were trying to, put me under because they were going to have to put me under for the the surgery. One of the uh, OBGYN doctors that I had seen while I was there was most, I think for me, the most traumatizing part of all this. She came up to me and she was trying to tell me about essentially, look, you know, you're you're 25 weeks. This is really early, Um, Mm -hmm. very, very early in the pregnancy. And, you know, we're going to do the best that we can, but we don't we don't know what's going to happen and
0: um, and i
1: understood the desire to want to prep me for the idea that they didn't know what was going to happen mm-hmm. but in this particular instance i i personally felt like it was more comforting her to try and get right. me prepared for it but but at the time it was the worst thing i could possibly hearing so here's all this you know practice i was doing trying to stay calm and as they're trying to put the mask on me to put me to sleep she's telling me that and essentially in my mind she's saying your son's probably going to die oh uh, i start having a panic attack and start falling and so that was the last thing i remember before okay. going under i wake up uh thank goodness they you know as i'm coming to my husband's there i've got a, a work colleague who had showed up and uh they told me that it, my son made it, that he had survived, that, um, you know, that the surgery went well and that he had been transported to a Japanese hospital in Tokyo and that they knew that he was alive when he left the military base, but they had not received any updates since, and the way that it was presented was such that it was like, they don't know what his status is at that point. Okay. So, uh, my husband was there, and he said, "You know, I wanted to make sure I was here when you wake up. I'm going to now go to the hospital and and check and see how he's doing." So that was at about 9:30 at night. Um, I, I later found out from the hospital staff we arrived at that medical facility. Well, my husband picked me up at about 5:30 p.m. My son was born by 6:04 p.m. So when I say that this was like a frantic rapid movement. I mean, it was incredibly fast. And they've told me, I mean, in some ways it was a a miracle. One, because the staff that were there are not staff that that's not what they deal with on a daily basis. Right. But because of the time that we showed up, it was a a shift change for the people that were there. So there was twice the staff that would normally be there. There was another patient that was getting wheeled into an operating the only operating room. So it was completely prepped and they were able to divert that patient and I was able to get in immediately. Wow. So essentially the stars had a line that yeah. when I showed up, they were able to get me in there immediately. So I you know, I'm incredibly thankful for the staff and what they were able to do uh, you know, far beyond what their, you know, daily requirements would be. So my husband leaves that night to go to the hospital and it's about nine thirty and i don't hear back from him until 3:30 in the morning and that entire time i cannot sleep because i'm just so nervous you know trying to piece together what just happened yeah uh, and and what's going on is he going to be okay and so as i just remember the minutes going by seeming like forever and just the later it went into the night you know your mind just goes uh to dark places not knowing what happened so Luckily, he called and uh, you know everything was fine. That they were taking good care of him. He was at one of the best hospitals in Tokyo, which is you know one of the best children's hospitals in Japan, which have a very good reputation for uh, their neonatal capabilities and, and their doctors there. But it was then three days before I could actually see my son because mm. that was when I got discharged uh and so that was that was tough not to be able to to see him um and sort of having to go off of photos that my husband brought back um but we when I finally was able to go because of covid right covid had hit sort of the asian countries sooner i think than everywhere else in the world that yeah. was sort of their height at the time of covid so the restrictions were one parent a day for one hour. So for the first month that my son was in the hospital there, it was only seeing him for one hour every other day, best oh case scenario. Gosh. Um, And so, you know, this was our, this was for both of us, this was our first child. And in some ways, I think it was probably best. It was our first child because you don't know anything else, right? You've yeah. never gone through that experience. But I remember the first day when I went to the hospital, you know, I'm by myself because my husband couldn't go in with me. You're in a foreign country. They're speaking a language you don't understand. You can't read anything that's on the walls, right? And it was just the most incredible isolating feeling walking into essentially this quad bay of probably about... I think there was about 26 babies it's a massive room uh of babies and the the way that this hospital was set up in their NICU they have these bays where if you are incubated uh or in an incubator you're in a special section essentially they're higher risk babies and so that's where Arwen was the entire time he was there so it's packed and I remember just breaking down because mm-hmm. it, it was just such a terrifying feeling to be there alone and to then each day have to leave him. And, and he does. I mean, he was a baby, right? He doesn't know anything, but for us, it's, you know, you don't know where your, your, your surroundings. And, yeah, uh, yeah. So it was very, very difficult, but, uh, I think the harder part was figuring out when to bring him back to the U S um, so fairly early on, the American doctors advised us that you know they wanted to be able to bring him back to an American hospital because the Japanese medicine is amazing, and I think that they took him through the most vulnerable stage of his life, you know, as a 25-weeker baby, to make sure that he could thrive down the road in life. Um, but at a certain point. The concern was he was not gaining enough weight okay. and the long-term impact that can have. And the Japanese system of medicine and the American system of medicine is just fundamentally different in how aggressive they are in feedings. So they really wanted to bring them back. Um, and so they put it to us to make that decision when, which is just, it was so hard because it's, you know, neither my husband or I have a medical background to know yeah. when do you make the call? And there's obviously inherent risks in flying uh, a, a baby that's premature, that does, you know, that's, he was intubated for about a month and then he was fine, he was on CPAP for another two months. Um, so he was going to be on oxygen support for the flight and just anything could yeah. go wrong. So we eventually, in July made the call that he was strong enough to where he could make the flight. And he Mm -hmm. was getting to a stage where the weight gain was becoming a larger issue. So our final destination was Washington, DC. So the, the U S military bless their hearts, they, brought uh, to C-17 massive military aircraft. Wow. They fly it to the base where I was at. Um, They, you know, they've got an ambulance that transported our son from the Japanese hospital to the American military base. They transfer him to, you know, the American incubator. We get on the aircraft with him. Um, My husband and I, He's in an incubator. It's been retrofitted for military or for medical transport. So they've cleared out the whole hole of the inside of the aircraft. We're sitting along the edges. He's strapped into this incubator that's (laughs) strapped into the floor. He's got, there's three medical staff that are attending that are there in case anything goes wrong. Uh, And we fly from Japan to Hawaii for an overnight layover. And then we make the long haul to Washington DC where he was then in the NICU at, at Walter Reed and in Washington DC for just under a month and then was discharged a day before his due date. Uh, And, you know, so we got to see the difference between the NICU in Japan and the NICU in the U S and there's definite differences. Uh, I'm, and and it was an amazing i mean i would never wish it upon anyone it was an incredibly stressful time but we've got a healthy baby boy now uh and we're just so thankful for that and the the support we got from our our military community while we were going through the process yeah. and uh you know obviously heightened by the the isolating factors of covid i would say i'm incredibly fortunate to have a very strong partner and you know, be focused on yeah. making sure to find the positives of, of what was going on. I mean, the language barrier in and of itself. I mean, I probably tormented the poor Japanese nurses in that NICU because, <laughs> I mean, I, I think like any parent, you go in and you want to know what's been going on. How's my son doing? Yeah. and just a simple yeah. question like that would literally cause them to go into a panic because they don't speak English, and so they had yeah. this like little handheld translator that they were using. And it would, I mean, just imagine the worst translation blunders that you could, have, yeah. they would say something and it would spit out. And it's like, I know you definitely did not mean to say that. <laughs> I mean, That's not what you said. Uh, but we had to get to a point where we just realized that we would find out how much milk he had drank, what his weight was. And then other than that, we would have to, we had a weekly call with the actual translator and the doctor. And okay, uh, we just had to get by on the day to day of just being happy to be there and spend maybe, you know, an hour of, of quiet time with them.
0: Actually, that, that leads us quite nicely on uh, to our first sense, which we'll discuss, which is sound. Yeah, so the, the sounds, I would say, the biggest
1: thing for me was the difference between the, the two NICUs. The, the types of sounds you would hear were so different. Okay. In Japan, uh, the it, there was the constant, you know, technology beeping noises that were going on and crying babies in the background because that hospital was constantly full of NICU babies, of serious mm-hmm. NICU babies. Um, but because we couldn't understand the language, it all sort of morphed into this white noise background. Right, uh, to where you really could just sort of zone out and and at a point it just became like this white noise that you're not hearing anymore whereas I found in the American NICU there were far fewer babies so you didn't have that same sort of beeping and you know whirring noise the technology noises were absent yeah <laughs> but because Americans are loud and noisy you would hear the noise <laughs> you'd have you know the nurses and the families that were there that were talking. And so it was, you know, a different type of, of noises that you would hear. But I found the one noise I think has stuck for me was that I find the hardest to hear is the, the sound of, of babies crying. Um, because when Arwen, my son, was in the Japanese hospital, there there would always be a baby nearby that you would hear crying very, very loud. And just because there were so many compared to the nurses, they would yeah. usually go crying for a period of time and it would just break oh, your heart, right? Because yeah. you wanted to be there for them. And it would always be in the back of my mind of, is this what, you know, our son's doing when we're not here? And it just, I think that part was really hard because um, you would hear that and you would just want to go comfort them. But because, you know, parents are only able to be there for an hour, that means for the other 23 hours, it's, if a nurse has the ability to go sue them, then they will, but otherwise they would just sort of cry it out. Um, and so now, even now it's, it's hard for me to hear sort of the uh, babies when they're not, when someone's not trying to sue them, right? Cause they just want yeah. to go over there and do something. So I think for me, that sort of like the sounds that unfortunately it reminds me of the NICU. The drive to and from that hospital was about an hour each way. So uh, even if it was, for example, my husband's day to go visit, to go inside, we always made that trip together. So um, we spent a lot of time in the car listening to the radio. And uh, so for better or worse, there are songs just because that's what was being played on the radio. We're now... I hear that and I just think yeah. of the drives that we would have back and forth. Um, but I I wanted to be able to, whether it be sing or, or talk more yeah. with our son in the hospital, but it's amazing, I don't want to say peer pressure, but when you try to conform your behavior to the culture that you're in to some extent, and we were very obviously the foreign parents in the room just from everything like we would the japanese parents would sit there and look at the babies but they were not i know i'm blending senses right now but they wouldn't touch the babies really um, and they would it was just sort of watching from afar whereas for my husband and i any waking moment that we could you know to to cradle him with our hands yeah. put him on like our hands on his back or something like that. We were trying to do that. And so uh you know, even reading a book to him. I, I joke that we got in trouble a lot, but we really did get in trouble a lot. Mm-hmm. I there was a miscommunication where I thought that they told me I could bring a book in to read to him. And everything I had heard talked about the benefits of, you know, reading to your kids from a really yes. early yeah yeah so i brought a book in and it was just you know a little nursery rhyme book that i was uh reading to him shared this moment i thought you know how wonderful i'm gonna i'm gonna keep on doing this and then of course we get the call afterwards where it's because of covid you can't bring anything into the room so we couldn't you know we couldn't decorate his incubator we couldn't bring books in to read it was really just a you know for better words a one-on-one experience where you could be there and and talk to him which was really more like whispering because it was so quiet in a lot of other ways in that in that space that we didn't want to be the obnoxious parents who were (laughs) making a scene but uh yeah so i I feel like when we were in japan aside from the technology beepings or, or crying babies it was really the absence of sound uh that you would have as well
0: Should we move on to taste now? Yeah. Um, any particular foods or snacks that that you had in Japan or when you were back home that stick in your head?
1: Yeah, I think probably the most regular snack that we were having because every time we would go uh, to the hospital in Japan, just because we knew we had a, a long trip mm-hmm. or a long drive before or after, there's effectively like a 711 convenience store that's in the bottom of the hospital. So frequently it was Red Bull and then these <laughs> like melon I don't know how to describe it. it's almost like a melon pastry. It's just the Okay. They call it a melon because it's just the shape of essentially like a sugary croissant. Okay. Uh and so that was sort of my guilty pleasure <laughs> that I would frequently get when we were leaving the the hospital and so um, I definitely got used to having that, probably way too frequently to be healthy. <laughs> but that—that is probably the taste I most associate with the time when Arwen was in the hospital. Yeah. So the um, while we were in Japan, the 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 families, the military families that were on the base were were great, and for the first several weeks. After Arwin was born, about every other day or so, there was a, a family that would come and bring, you know, a home cooked meal, which which helped immensely. Uh, and then oh. I would say after that, I get a lot of pleasure from cooking, and so for me, it was a sort of a way to to take my mind off of things. Okay. Uh, and sort of the, so I would I I went back into to cooking to try and you know be healthy and whatnot once. Yeah. Uh, once that ended um uh, the hospital didn't have I mean one we were only there for an hour when we were in Japan so it was never enough where you know oh we've got to get our meals from there and yeah
0: yeah and then
1: when we were in the US we were cuz we had just I mean we moved back to the US so we were still trying to figure out what our permanent housing was going to be so we were oh gosh ineffectively a hotel for the we were in a hotel for the duration of the time that he was in the NICU. So luckily, it wow. was a, a hotel that has you know a really tiny kitchen, so we could make rudimentary meals. But because it was COVID, we couldn't go off base to get groceries. We couldn't go to restaurants to to get food. I mean, it was once you returned from Japan to the U.S. at the time, you had to quarantine for two weeks. So, the only way we were able to, I mean, the only time we could leave was if we were going directly to the NICU to see him. Okay. So, that was uh, food wise, was pretty difficult. For, it was not the healthiest of food.
0: If you're happy to, we'll move on to smell. Are there yeah. any smells that remind you of your time either in Japan or at home? Yeah. So, um, i mean the
1: the smells in japan I, I would say would be before or after that we got into the hospital. I think because you're wearing a face mask the whole time that you're mm, in the hospital yeah. it if there was a smell, it was so dampened that uh again I mean I guess it's the the absence of smell where you're it's such a sanitized place where you're washing your hands like crazy that and and they they specifically said do not wear you know scented anything scented lotions perfumes or whatever it may be so there really was no smells that were there and I remember hearing that you know one of the things that it can help for the parents if your child is in the NICU is to try and get a piece of clothing or or some cloth that they had been wearing or that they were near to try and smell at home. And so I I managed to try to explain to the nurse what I was trying to do. And he really wasn't wearing clothes the entire time when he was in Japan, he just had a diaper. And I was like, well, I'm not going to take his diaper home. No. And so (laughs) they had these uh, little gauzes that they put under his head I think, for a day in hopes that it would pick up maybe some of the smells. Uh, and at that point, we hadn't been able to hold him. So I, I had no idea what he smelled like, but I had always heard, you know, there's this, you know, bonding moment you can get. So I remember the first day when I, I got it, I took it home. It was in a little Ziploc. And I took it out and it was this really exciting moment of, oh, my God, I'm finally going to be able to smell my son. Yeah. There was no smell. Oh. I was heartbroken. I smelled. I see. You know, I tried to stiff. I was like, you know, I would be faking it right now if I pretended like I could smell something. But
0: oh. there was
1: no smell, and I was just so, you know, gutted that I, I still was it was gonna have to be a little bit before I could try to smell anything. I mean, I don't think it was probably until I, I held him the first time that I finally could try to to smell something. You know, when we did kangaroo care.
0: Let's move on to sight then. So the first time you saw him was in a photograph.
1: Yeah. So um, it was the second day. So the first day when my husband that night, when he went to the hospital, um, you can't take your phone in to take photos. You have to have like an actual traditional, you know, no electronics, right? old school camera. For some reason, thank goodness, we happened to have one that we hadn't used for who you knows <laughs> how long. So I remember I had been waiting for him to be able to come back to the hospital so I could see my son. And when he said that they couldn't take, he couldn't take any photos, you know, it was just sort of a another stab. But the the second day he was able to take photos.
0: Okay.
1: Um, And, you know, it's, it's weird. It, yeah, at that age, when they're that premature, he's... You know, sort of the skin is still growing, so it's definitely a like a a reddish hue to it. Um, and then obviously he's intubated and he's got lots of different pipes and wires around, and so it was hard to to see him like that. Um, so that was the the first time I I saw him was in in photographs, but I I was amazed at how defined. The features are. Like, I mean, even at that young age, I mean, you see fingernails, you see little yeah. fingers. It was very surreal for me to just to see him there and, you know, the flesh. And then when I saw him the first time in person, again, sort of, I mean, the part for me I, that stays with me today is having to walk through the hallways of the NICU by myself in Japan. That I think it was before I even got to the, the room where he was at was when I, I already lost it and I was crying. And so, you know, walking up to the Nick or into the incubator and it's got a little blanket that's covering the top of it to try and keep the light away and, and pulling it back. And yeah. it's just such a weird feeling just to, to see your child for the first time. And yeah, you know, if at least for me, it was just very, very weird. Cause Oh, at course, 25 yeah. weeks, you know, you're pregnant. I mean, obviously, you know, you're pregnant. But mentally, I just was not prepared for it at that moment. So first sight, I would say that because of the fact that we were only able to see uh, for a long period of time, every other day got to the point after the first month, mm-hmm. I think it was. I think it was after about a month or so. Both parents could go, but you were still limited on how long you could stay. Um, But the way that we went through the process was essentially to document everything, right? So because we were there for such little time, for me, it was a way to be able to, to be there with him, even when we weren't there, was to be able to take these photos. And my husband would then, you know, we created a private little YouTube channel where we could then, I could go. You know, at night when I, you know, if I was sad or or missing him, I could go back through and look at, you know, that these videos or or photos. And so just being able to see him through that, you know, using that technology to sort of bridge the gap for even when we're not there. I think that that really helped. Um, I think that was probably one of the best things that we could do.
0: Oh, that's great. And that's that's something that's there forever now isn't it so like as he gets older you'll be able to say to him look this is you uh, when you were a tiny baby
1: (laughs) yeah he'll probably laugh he'll hear his mom and dad's commentary in the background and (laughs) sort of figuring out what's going on yeah
0: okay so this is this is the final sense and probably the the biggest one um because it's touch and I know you said that when you were in japan there wasn't really very much of that allowed um so just talk me through
1: yeah i mean the the touch for us was probably one of the specialist moments whenever we got to uh, you know touch him and it was our way of trying to make him feel comforted even if we weren't able to pick him up yeah uh, when we were in japan just being able to put your hands in the incubator and and try and cradle him or or hold it, you know, hold his hand or something like that was uh, probably one of the biggest stress reliefs of the day was just uh. being able to have that moment. Uh, you know, it was, for me, it was about five weeks after he was born was the first time I got to do kangaroo care, you know, putting him on, on my chest and, and being able to hold him. And it's crazy now, we'll, you know, we'll put him on our stomachs. And it's like, I can't, even imagine how small he was anymore i mean it's just he was like the size of my husband's hand at the time and and now he's you know like five times way bigger than that (laughs) now um but then it was about seven weeks after he was born before i could actually they gave him to me like to cradle to hold him so that was an incredible feeling i mean for me that was the first time where i felt really like a mom right yeah. like where i was holding him and it was like yeah, i had seen other moms and then NICU be able to do it and i, I drove them crazy because i was always trying to you know can i hold him today can i hold him today and I'd be like no oh. no no you know he's too small or can't regulate the temperature so it was uh it was really hard t- to wait but that satisfaction of being able to finally hold him was amazing and then yeah. it was You know, it was ten weeks before my husband could do that. So, both of us went through this very long period of time where we were so limited in what we could do for to touch him that it made it so we were. I think, like I mentioned before, that we were scared to do it in some ways because we it created in our mind this idea that he was just incredibly fragile uh, to anything that we do. So then you get to the U.S. and I mean, he was at a point where you know i think even if he'd been in japan he would have started to rapidly grow at that point it was yeah. well, it was it would it was around 36 to 40 weeks uh would have been gestation for him for the time period when he was in the us so he went to an open crib um and we could pick him up whenever we wanted like in in japan they had very strict like okay you know this is his cycle this is his schedule that he has right. so really even if you're here you know at a particular time if it was not the time for him to be stimulated or, or have that sensory interaction, then they would ask you, you know, can you limit what you're doing? Or we can't, wow. you know, do X, Y, and Z right now because he's resting. And so it was very, very structured. And then in the US, it was essentially as much as we wanted to just pick him up uh, and hold him. And so uh, that was very, very liberating and, and a great feeling. I mean, because you have all these experiences where, you're, I mean, I guess you're te- like, I mean, I guess I was technically holding him at one point when he's inside of yeah. an incubator and you've got your hands through and you've got to yeah. move, you know, these wires around and you've lifted them up so they could change the bedding underneath. But that's not, I mean, that no one imagines that when you're a mom, right? Like, that's not the experience that you think you're going to have. No. Um, and it really is one of those things where you could easily, I, I mean, I think for a lot of people, I could easily see how you could slip into a dark hole of, if you just focused on the negatives with it, but instead we just had to focus on, you know, the little milestones of, you know, he's drinking one more milliliter of milk today than he was yesterday. So that's, that's progress. Uh, and being able to change his, I remember when we got to take, give him a bath for the first time. Uh, luckily he liked it, but again, for us, the best part about that was that was the first time, and again, I don't remember exactly what it was. It was definitely, I think, not till the end of his time in Japan um, where we got to help give him a bath. But that was the first time when he wasn't hooked up to wires. Yeah. Right. I mean, learning how to change a diaper on a baby when they, one, are that tiny. But then, two, you've got to maneuver around all these wires that are in there. It's like, oh, my yeah. God. and. But then when you're giving them a bath, it's like, oh my gosh, I can just pick you up and there's there's no wires. And it, it did, you know, it's just one of those things where it's a, a very surreal feeling and it was just so exciting, though.
0: It's just such a lovely story that you've got. So tell us, how's Arwen doing now? He's doing great. Uh,
1: you would never be able to tell... That he was ever a micropremi. I mean, we were incredibly fortunate. Um, we were told early on when he was born that there is, you know, a litany of things that he could leave the hospital with, mm-hmm. with equipment and, or different things going on in his life that could be around for a little bit or could be around for a long time. Mm-hmm. And he really struggled with breathing, and for a long time we thought that maybe he would end up having to come home with some sort of oxygen supply. Uh, but when he got back to the U.S. and he put on some weight, he just I, and I like to say that <laughs> I'm going to credit ourselves and say, that, you know, by being able to have more time with mom and dad, <laughs> yes. he he flourished and he did Absolutely. very well. Uh, and so now he is he's got his birthday coming up, his first birthday uh, in May. And I already told my husband, I think for year one, this is going to be a celebration for me (laughs) and him. He'll have plenty of birthdays down the road, but we went through so much this first year just to to have that market and be done with it. And I think in August when it was his, you know, his originally scheduled birthday, then he'll get his his cake and and be able to have (laughs) have that moment. But we're just so happy for him now. And he's, yeah, he's growing. He's got big old chubby cheeks and (laughs) His hair is like a permanent mohawk right now. We have never cut it, but it just that's just the way that it looks.
0: What's his personality like?
1: Oh gosh, he's such a daddy's boy. Oh. He loves his dad. Uh and every time he looks at him, just a smile comes on, which warms oh. my heart. But he's uh he's talkative. He hates tummy Time like lots of babies and <laughs> so it's, just trying to make sure that you know obviously now there's the the developmental aspect of making sure that he catches up to to where yeah. he would be otherwise mm-hmm. so well we're going to continue working with that but he just brings us lots of joy
0: Nicole thank you so much for sharing your story it's just absolutely amazing to hear I can't believe everything that you had to go through it's just insane but thank God that he's here now and he's well and you're doing well. And I know you mentioned that it's made you stronger as a family, but thank you so much for sharing.
1: No, thank you, Emma. Thank you for everything that you're doing.
0: Take care. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. That's all for today. So thank you for listening please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. If you think you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, you can get in touch via email at sensingniku at gmail.com. And why not follow us on Twitter at sensingniku? To read about my IVF and NICU journey, feel free to take a look at my blog, Head of Drama, Tales of Teddy. Finally... If you'd like to show support for families experiencing neonatal care, please consider donating to Spoons, a charity very close to my heart. Any amount will be so greatly appreciated. Links to both my blog and the Spoons website can be found in the episode description. Thanks again for listening and take care. See you later.